Hello, and welcome to In the Word with Michelle Telfer. Thank you for joining us for this in-depth study of God's Word, the Bible. For more of Michelle's resources or to read her blog, visit her website at intheword.com. And now, Michelle. Father God, thank you for drawing us together again today, and we pray that you would continue to speak to our hearts through your word, to the praise and glory of Christ's name alone. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Well, our previous program concluded with Christ's words to Nicodemus in John 3.16. And today we're going to start there and go on into verse 17. Verse 16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. God so loved us that he was prepared to allow his one and only son, Jesus, to die in our place and to pay the price for our sin. Belief in the finished work of Christ is really what saves us because those who trust in him are given eternal life. Look at what Paul said in Romans 3.20. No one will be declared righteous in God's sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. However, in the text that follows, Paul goes on to say that there is a righteousness from God that comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. We all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but we can be forgiven because God presented Christ as a sacrifice to make amends for our sin. All we need to do is to have faith in Christ's blood. And you know, if Nicodemus was really honest with himself, he would have had to admit that even though he tried his best, he wasn't perfect. Even he needed a savior. Speaking of himself, Jesus then goes on to tell Nicodemus in John 3.18, Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. So there is now no condemnation for those who entrust themselves to Jesus, but those who reject belief in him do so at their own peril. It is their choice to make, however. God wants us to follow him, but he will not force us to follow him. Unfortunately, verse 19, this is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. Now, I know that when you and I share our faith in Christ with others, very often people will say to us, well, you know, when I understand a bit more about Christ, then I'll commit to him. But in reality, according to this text, a lack of understanding is not really what 
keeps people from committing to Christ. What keeps them from committing is their love of sin. And that's what keeps them in darkness. Now, we'll see later on that Nicodemus did finally understand the conversation with Jesus, and he did become a follower who clearly identified with Christ at the crucifixion. But for now, John's attention is going to turn again to John the Baptist. Look at verse 22. After this, Jesus and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside, where he spent some time with them and baptized. Now, John was also baptizing at Ione near Salem, because there was plenty of water and people were coming and being baptized. This was before John was put in prison. An argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, look, he's baptizing and everyone is going to him. Now, you'll remember that I've said before, anytime John references the Jews, or in this instance, a certain Jew, he's making reference to the Jewish religious leaders. So then this dispute arose because of the religious leaders' interference. This leader targets John the Baptist's disciples, hoping that what he said about Jesus' baptizing other people would result in a disagreement and competition arising between them and the followers of Christ. It certainly seems that way because John the Baptist's disciples only complained to him about Jesus baptizing people once this uh, discussion has occurred. So look at how John replies, though. He clearly points out that all ministry comes from God, and once again, that Jesus is greater than he. Verse 27. To this John replied, A person can receive only what is given them from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Messiah, but I am sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and it is now complete." According to the marriage customs of that time, a bridegroom would be helped by his relative or close friend who would assist in the discussions with the bride's family. And it's clear from the New Testament that the church, those who belong to Jesus, we are really called the bride of Christ. So John points to the fact that he is not the bridegroom. Jesus is, and he is merely the relative who goes ahead of the bridegroom to prepare the way for him. And John says to them, he must become greater, I must become less. The one who comes from above is above all. The one who is from the earth belongs to the earth and speaks as one from the earth. The one who comes from heaven is above all. He testifies to what he has seen and heard, but no one accepts his testimony. Whoever has accepted it has certified that God is truthful. For the one whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for God gives the Spirit without limit. 
The Father loves the Son and has placed everything in His hands. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. We can't dwell on this, but John compares himself to Christ, saying that Jesus has come from heaven while he, John, is merely from the earth. It really is Christ's words that need to be received. Jesus must become greater and John must become less. The key verse in what John the Baptist says to his disciples, though, is verse 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath or wrath remains on them. It is important for us to understand that scripture clearly shows that man is an eternal being. We will all live forever, but our choice will determine where we spend eternity. Will it be in eternal life? In other words, will we live forever in the glorious presence of God? Or will we suffer what the Bible calls the second death? The second death is not destruction, as you might imagine. Rather, it's eternal separation from the presence of God. Man's spirit is eternal. We all live forever, but we all have a choice as to where we're going to spend our eternity. Believe in Jesus and you'll have life with God, but reject him and God's wrath will remain on you. Let's go into chapter 4. Verse 1. Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Although, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. Jesus is in the south of the country, but he decides to return to Galilee, which is in the north. And it's important to notice that the scripture actually says that Jesus had to go through Samaria. And that is actually a very strange thing to say, because although Samaria lay between Judea in the south and Galilee in the north, it was the custom in those days for Jews to avoid going through Samaritan territory altogether. And they used to do that by crossing over the Jordan River and traveling on its eastern bank, which was outside of Samaritan territory. Jewish people hated the Samaritans and they would avoid all contact with them. But who were these people? Well, hundreds of years earlier, after King David's son Solomon had ruled Israel, the nation split into two different kingdoms. Two tribes of Judah and Benjamin formed the southern kingdom of Judah, and their capital city was, of course, Jerusalem. The other 10 tribes, though, formed the northern kingdom of Israel, and their capital city was called Samaria. Now, because the northern kingdom had so many evil kings, they were quickly invaded by the Assyrians as a judgment from God. 
And although many of the Israelites were taken captive and shipped off to foreign lands, some of the people were left behind. And against God's commands, those people, or at least many of them, ended up by marrying the enemy. And that's how the Samaritans had come into being. They were of mixed blood. They were of Israelite and Assyrian descent. And to the Jewish people, that name Samaritan was like a curse word. The feelings were mutual, however. You see, the two groups, the Jews and the Samaritans, disagreed as to where God should be worshipped. The Jews said that true worship could only happen in the temple in Jerusalem. However, the Samaritans thought that God should be worshipped on Mount Gerizim, which was actually a mountain in their territory. One night when uh, Jesus would have been a young boy, the Samaritans actually managed to creep into the temple in Jerusalem and they scattered human bones throughout the sanctuary. And Josephus, who was a Jewish historian of the time, said that that terrible act was so bad it actually interrupted Passover that year. And so the hatred that the Jews had for the Samaritans grew and grew. The Jews cursed Samaritans in their synagogues. Samaritan testimony was never allowed in a Jewish court of law. And even if a Samaritan decided that they really did want to become a Jew after all, they would be refused because according to the rabbis, there was actually no way back for the Samaritan people. Now, to travel through Samaria took about three days, and a Jew could count on getting no help from the local inhabitants as they went. So no wonder the Jews avoided going through the region. So then the question becomes, why did Jesus have to go through Samaria? He had to go because there was someone he had to meet. And not only was that person a Samaritan, as if that were not bad enough, it was a Samaritan woman. Verse 5. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sachar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Well, in those days, it was customary for women to draw water in the cool of the day. So the question is, why does this woman come in the fierce midday heat when all the others were sheltering from the sun? I think the answer is obvious. She wanted to avoid them, and so she chose to go when no one else would be there. But Jesus was there, and what's more, he's actually gone out of his way to meet her. He speaks to her and he asks her for a drink. And John tells us that she replies, you are a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? And he explains then for the sake of his non-Jewish readers that Jews do not associate with Samaritans. 
She knew, according to Jewish custom, Jesus would have become unclean if he so much as touched the water pot that she had touched. And you know, I think sometimes we also hold on to things that we believe God would never want to touch, that we can't really talk to the Lord about that because he'd never want to be associated with that thing either. But he not only wanted to touch her water pot, he wanted to touch her heart as well. There's no point in holding things back from him. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself as did also his sons and his livestock? You see, though she doesn't understand, when Jesus speaks of living water here, he's actually making a reference to God's word that was spoken long ago through the prophet Jeremiah in the Old Testament. In Jeremiah chapter 2 verse 13, God had said to his people, my people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. You see, this woman had drifted from God. She tried to quench her thirst in so many different ways. But in a spiritual sense, these substitutes were rather like the broken water tanks that the scripture spoke of. And she'd come up empty. Jesus is the only thing that she needs. He is the living water. But she's not thinking about spiritual things. And so she asks him, are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well? And of course, the answer is yes, because in a spiritual sense, Jesus is the well. Jesus seeks to guide her to that water of life, even so. And he tells her in verse 13, Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. You know, I find it amazing that Jesus, a Jew, speaks to her, a Samaritan woman of eternal life. I'm convinced that this woman had a lot of needs and yet her request focuses solely on her physical need. All she wants is to have her physical thirst quenched so that she won't have to keep coming to this well with her water jar each day under the watchful eyes of the other women in the village. Why does she hate going to the well day after day? Well, Jesus knows why. He told her, go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. And there was the problem. 
She had been married to five different men and she was not even married to the sixth man. What could have happened? Why so many? Had she just been looking for love in all of the wrong places? Or had she been passed from man to man because she was barren and had not been able to produce children? The shame of it. No wonder she avoided the other women. I think that just like us, though, this woman was thirsting for love and acceptance. She felt empty inside and alone. But this was something she did not want to talk about. And she quickly tries to change the conversation by picking up on the disputes of the time between the Jews and the Samaritans. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Remember the Jews and the Samaritans disagreed about where God should be worshipped? The Jews said the only place was the temple in Jerusalem, but the Samaritans said God could be worshipped and in fact had to be worshipped on Mount Gerizim. Well, that very mountain stood right outside of the woman's village. Personally, I doubt she really cared, but she was just trying to take an old argument to change the subject. Verse 21. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshippers must worship in the spirit and in truth. So Jesus addresses her with respect, no matter what others thought of her. He uses that address, woman. And essentially, he tells her that it doesn't matter where you perform your religious duties if you don't truly know God. With Christ's arrival, people will worship in a new and deeper way in the power of the Holy Spirit and in truth. Why does that make so many people feel uncomfortable? You see, feeling cornered, she makes one final attempt to dodge the conversation. The woman said, I know that the Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Now, it might surprise you, but the Samaritans studied the first five books of the Old Testament, and they too were expecting the promised Messiah. But whereas the Jews expected the Messiah to be a political leader, the Samaritans expected him to be a great teacher. And so not really wanting to discuss this anymore, she tries to end the conversation by saying, in effect, I don't understand any of this, but I do know that there is one coming who's going to help it make all the sense that it can. The one who's coming to explain everything, the Messiah. Then Jesus declared, I the one speaking to you am he.
And I think that time stops for her as she suddenly realizes who he is. Frequently, I imagine that the disciples' timing was a bit out, and I can imagine them loudly bursting in on the scene. Startled by what they see, their voices suddenly die down and they wonder what's going on, but no one says anything. Look at verse 27. Just then, his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman, but no one asked, what do you want or why are you talking with her? Then, leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. So as she begins to see Christ for who he is, things start to change for this woman. Now, I know it may seem like such a small thing, we might even miss it. But did you see that the woman left her water jar behind as she ran back to the village? That water jar had controlled her life up until that point, And yet she leaves it behind forgotten at the well. Suddenly, it's not that important after all. Not only that, but she goes back to the people in the town who she'd been so anxious to avoid before with the message that she thinks she's found the Messiah. And as a result, they follow her out to Jesus. Do you understand that by entrusting the message of who he was to this woman, Jesus was choosing someone that no one else would have even spoken to under normal circumstances. So why do we think he can't use us then? Verse 39. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. So notice, when she speaks to them, she does not try to protect herself. She actually even refers to her past, but her shame seems to have gone. It's as if she finally understands that Jesus, the promised one of God, knows every secret she has, and yet he still wants to talk to her, and more than that, he still wants to be her friend. It changes her life, and it changes the way she relates to others also. She brings them the good news, and has it has an astounding effect on those around her. The other Samaritans not only believe Christ because of her testimony, but they actually invite Jesus and his disciples to stay with them for two days. Remember that expressing hospitality to Jews just did not happen in that place. They act totally out of character. Why? It's because of her testimony. And after coming to Christ themselves, they said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we've heard for ourselves and we know that this man really is the savior of the world. 
You see, they no longer only believe because of what she said to them. It's become personal for them now. Theirs is not second-hand faith. They've heard his message and they've accepted it for themselves. And they recognize Jesus, that he is not only the Messiah, but that he is the savior of all who will put their faith in him. The woman at the well story, though, is really our story, too, because no matter what you and I have done, despite all that Jesus knows of our past, he will not reject us, even if others have. He wants to take our burdens. He wants to set us free to share the good news about him with others. And all we have to do is believe he is who he said he is. Let's pray. Father God, we just thank you so much for what we've learned through this woman at the well today and that how as she came to Christ, her life was profoundly changed forever. Thank you, Lord, for choosing a woman such as her to be your first evangelist to the Samaritan people. What hope that gives us, Lord, that we too can be used by you, despite our background, despite what we've done, and despite our own inadequacies. We just thank you, Lord God, that you invite us to join you in the work that only you can do. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to In the Word with Michelle Telfer. Join us next week as we continue our study from God's Word, the Bible. For more of Michelle's resources, visit her website at intheword.com.